Welcome to this episode of Raising Resilience. I'm Pam Ressler, the founder of Stress Resources and a faculty member in the Department of Public Health and Community Medicine at Tufts University School of Medicine. Today, I'm very honored to have as my guest, my friend and healthcare colleague, Dr. Brian Stork. Brian and I first met on healthcare chats on Twitter a number of years ago and then met in person and presented together at Stanford University's Medicine X conference. Actually, we just presented last fall on um, haiku and health and healing. So perhaps we'll get a chance to discuss that. Brian is an assistant professor in the Department of Urology at the University of Michigan, my alma mater. He, and he practices in Southwest Michigan in Muskegon. His current area of research interests um, include the effects of adverse childhood experiences on physician mental health and behavior. But he's also a children's book author and a beekeeper. You can find his physician and patient blogs at drbrianstork.com. So welcome, Brian. Thank you so much for chatting with me today. We're in a crazy new world of kind of navigating this time of coronavirus. And let's focus a bit on resilience and what we can all do to mitigate the effects and our feelings of helplessness and hopelessness, isolation, and fear for those of us in healthcare and also those who aren't, who are simply living in this day of COVID-19. So welcome. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me on your podcast. I'm excited about your new podcast. (laughs) A new iteration. (laughs) And I'm really thrilled with it. And I'm thrilled because I get to talk with people who I have respected so much in, in their work as friends and colleagues. And kind of bring that conversation out to a broader audience. So again, you know, I really am I'm thrilled for us to be able to kind of sit around the table today and, and just talk about what we can do, perhaps also, you know, what we can do proactively for our kids um, to maybe mitigate the potential that they're going to you know, be suffering trauma in their later life and their health may be affected by this. So let's, let's just chat. Where do you want to start? Healthcare workers, kids? What, what makes well, sense can, to you? Can we talk about resilience first? Sure. Go ahead. So, um, so I grew up on a farm in Iowa and um, resilience for us as farmers was um, generally directed towards the concept of corn. Mm-hmm. So corn in the fields was either resilient or it wasn't. And as farmers, we always wanted more resilient corn. So my grandfather was a a corn breeder. He um, created different uh, types of corn by cross-pollinating. And you always got the impression that if you weren't the most resilient corn, you really weren't worth planting. (laughs) So I thought I'd, I'd start with that and see what you had to say, and then I, I do have a follow-up thought for you. Yeah, well, I love that that kind of move into that it isn't just about humans, huh? So our environment, the plants around us uh, are resilient and not. I'm, I'm curious, though, what makes corn resilient or not resilient? Is that, that Well, it's, so it's... it's a- yeah, it's all in the genetics, but the traits you look for are, you know, can it endure drought? 
Mm-hmm. Um, can it survive heat? Um, can it be productive? Uh, can it survive pests? Those are the those are the things we look for in corn. And it sounds like the corn that is resilient needs to be adaptable to multiple adverse weather conditions or growing conditions for it to be successful. Is that accurate? That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think if we can translate that to people, um, often it isn't the uh, seemingly strongest that survives. It's the one who's most adaptable to um, the environment where we find ourselves. Yeah, that's a good analogy. Yeah, I, I, love, kind of, I love that, for, yeah. Well, for a long time, I actually resented the word because I thought, well, geez, if I'm not the most resilient person, you know, I don't want to be like associated with the bad corn. But then, <laughs> you know, over time, I got to thinking maybe, maybe it's about cross-pollinating within yourself. You know, maybe uh, it's about yeah. taking different experiences, um, both good and bad, and different relationships that you have. And, um, you know... Uh, becoming a better person, plant, by combining all of those uh, experiences in your your life, you know, like maybe instead of corn where you're born with resiliency and that's all you get, Mm -hmm. maybe uh, as a human, I'm not limited by that. I can uh, take my life experiences and build resiliency. So when I started to think about it that way, I, I started to embrace the word and the concept a lot more. Yeah, I think that often the term resilience, um, we have the idea that it's, it's rather binary. You either have it or you don't. Um, it is a trait you were born with and, and that's it. What we're learning more is that we can build upon it. We can raise it. We can use those um, difficult experiences and um, integrate them into a wholeness, a feeling of adaptability. And um, I think that's very hopeful and, and exciting. I think that often um, resilience or lack of resilience can also be um, thought of as if you're not resilient, you're not going to survive. And that's in whatever way, in success and career and family. Um, but this idea that it is ever-changing and we have tools that we can see this as almost a superpower of building resilience versus it as uh, versus something that you either are resilient or you are not. So shifting from that binary view into something that's actually very powerful and um, kind of stealth. Nobody needs yeah, to Yeah, because know what then you're it doing. becomes like a creative process, right? Like, yeah, um, yeah. I, love I build that. resilience over time, and my family builds resilience with me, and maybe even my colleagues, you know. Absolutely. So let's shift a little into the place that you and I call home in the healthcare environment. Um, certainly, healthcare workers for the past decade or two have been under increasing levels of chronic stress, and we often can call that toxic stress. We've now layered upon that um, with uh, the coronavirus, a new state of acute stress. What can we do to help? Well, so let me um, say that 
in in Muskegon where I practice, we have not been um, hit to a large degree by the virus yet. We have a handful of cases here. It's not not anything like New York or Detroit. Um, so I have to speak with a little bit of humility on the subject. Mm-hmm. But uh, when I watch my Twitter feed and I see um, I see people in Italy clapping for their healthcare workers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I see people at the University of Michigan donating truckloads of personal protective equipment. Um, I, I see uh, families having uh, difficult discussions and actually becoming stronger um, because of the threat or potential threat that they face. I mean, that gives me hope and it inspires me. And I think, uh, you know, we're all stronger together. And as my um, my uh, mentor, uh, Dr. Miller says, we all rise and we fall together. Mm-hmm. And so we really have an opportunity to support each other um, and rise together in this. And I've talked to people lately in the hospital that I don't routinely talk to. I've talked to uh, security guards, uh, custodial workers. Um, not that I avoided uh, these people before, but with less colleagues in the hospital, um, they're more apparent now. And we can really build each other up as communities um, through this shared adversary, if you will. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, I think we're viewing um, our colleagues perhaps perhaps less in our disciplinary, traditional disciplinary roles, as you say. So the silos may be coming down more and including more people in those heroes of healthcare. Um, as you said, the um, janitors, housekeeping, um, patient transport, along with um, the respiratory therapists, the nurses, the physicians who are all in this together. And um, that connection may bring us closer to a feeling of community within our healthcare system, um, those of us who work in that, but also this view of the real heroes here are those who are going in on the front lines and perhaps the larger community will connect more with um, the work that's actually being done. So I love that idea of, of really acknowledging all of those there yeah, and, and hoping for community. And building relationships, you know, I mean, um, wouldn't it be great if this united our country as opposed to yeah. dividing yeah. It? it? It's just such a, it's such a uh, um, scary time, but yet it's such a, on the other hand, a potentially hopeful time. You know, so. Yeah, you know, one of the things we know about those folks who are, tend to be the most stress-hardy or resilient have a way of looking at uh, crises or, or challenges slightly differently than some folks who may not um, think of themselves or present as as more resilient. And one of those ways that they view danger or crises is actually looking for the opportunities. And that's not being Pollyanna and ignoring the the fear, but it's also acknowledging that there's an opening there. There's always an opening. And what can we gain from it rather than just focusing on the loss um, that is happening or has happened? And I think that's a really interesting way of of considering this 
global crisis right now. What are the things that we're actually going to take away that might make us better? And I, I have to tell you, we were in our own family, sort of, my wife and I were reviewing maybe those silver linings. Maybe that's not the right word, but but uh, yeah. But but the opportunities that this uh, crisis presents, and we thought, well, we have a senior this year who we didn't get to see very much because he was so involved in school activities. And while we mourn the fact that his prom's been canceled and potentially his graduation's been canceled, we're thrilled to be able to spend three more months with him before he goes off to college. Mm -hmm. um, and and to have him spend that time with his sister. And then there's also uh, professional things like telehealth. I probably wouldn't have gotten around to doing telehealth for another year had it not been for this uh, challenge. And now I've done it and it seems pretty easy. And I'm sure after this is all over, it'll be really convenient for a number of my patients. So mm -hmm. um, like you said, I think just taking a deep breath and thinking about those opportunities every day really helps you get through the day and breaking the day into maybe 12 hour segments really helps too. helps me anyway. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. So without our routine that has been disrupted, how do we break up the day? How do we find those places of, of relaxation and also productivity? Um, and I think people are struggling with that. So I guess I'll, I'll segue to a question I had for you. I know that um, you have lots going on besides being a physician. How do you continue to find joy amidst suffering, amidst um, busyness? Um, what are some ways that, that have been successful for you? Well, um, you know, just one simple thing we've done. Fortunately, we, we live in West Michigan, which is beautiful, as we've been on the trails a lot. And Pam, you'd think there's like a zombie apocalypse going on or something <laughs> because the, the woods are just full of people wandering around right now yeah, over here. True. Here too. But, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I think a lot of people find comfort in that. I, um, I'm really uh, excited about uh, being a beekeeper, um, getting my bees, the, the new bees that are going to arrive. And um, I've got a power washer uh, this weekend. I was going to clean the paint off the hive boxes and uh, repaint them. And so these distractions, these getting away from social media, getting away from the TV, uh, being active and enjoying uh, a hobby that, that you like. Actually, for me, uh, looking at the next few weeks here, this might be the most time I get to spend with my hobby. Mm. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Another, another opening in, in the danger. You know, fear yeah, you is, know. is, 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 kind of the primary, but if we allow that to kind of go into the background, I hear what you're saying. I mean, there are all these things that you have an opportunity to do differently now. Yeah, um, it, it's in some ways, I mean, obviously I'm planning on working and if I, I get called to help out um, in other capacities, I'm, I'm happy to do that. But in, in some ways it's almost like a mini sabbatical because we're not gonna be quite as busy as we were in the clinic. and. Um, mm -hmm. We're going to have a few hours here and there to, to do things that we wouldn't normally do. I think the real challenge for me is I like to exercise in a group setting. Uh, yeah. And I haven't found this whole video exercise thing uh, to work real well for me. So I don't know. Do you have any suggestions? Actually, I'm finding that challenging also. Um, I love to do Zumba. And uh, our teacher 
was so kind and made a video and sent it out to all of us, but I'm finding it hard to actually make the time to say, okay, I'm going to do this hour. And I like my group and I miss them. And so I think we're all kind of, those of us who love group exercise are really kind of struggling right now to, how do we do this? And I don't know, um, maybe we'll come up with some great, great alternatives. Maybe that's an opening that somebody just hasn't really um, done yet. So I'm, I'm with you on, on that one. I've been doing a lot of um, solitary walking and um, it doesn't take the place of being at a place with others though. Um, and that kind of goes into a point about, you know, we're using this term social distancing. And I really prefer physical distancing because yeah. um, we don't have to be socially isolated, but it's really challenging to find those places of connection. And I'm really concerned about kids, about elders who um, are really socially distancing right now. Um, and, and I'm concerned because your work and uh, interest around ACEs, um, we know that these challenges that kids face, a number of different ones, can have a profound impact on their later life. What, do you, what are your thoughts about how we can proactively address this impact and hopefully helping our kids um, come out of this stronger? Yeah, so um, I'm concerned because, uh, I mean, our entire country is having really one traumatic, giant, adverse childhood experience. Mm -hmm. And adverse childhood experiences are usually um, defined as um, experiences that induce long-term stress response and um, stress response that sometimes um, becomes chronically active. And so in addition to being good parents, to um, supporting our kids, to being honest with them, to answering their questions, to um, acknowledging our own fears, but at the same time, our own hopes, and teaching our children how to cope with adversity, those, those are the things that I would recommend to everyone. Obviously, in the society in which we live, there are a lot of single parent families, there are foster kids. Um, there are kids who have parents um, that are incarcerated or in, in bad situations. Um, it really only takes one other adult to help those kids, to give them hope, to uh, role model um, at a critical time in their life, to help kind of change the trajectory um, of their lives. So in addition to taking care of our own families, uh, we have to, as adults, uh, be cognizant to be good role models and help take care of other families and other kids, I think, during this really difficult time. Or I think uh, down the road, we're, we're going to see a lot of behavioral and health issues just as a result of this stress that wasn't um, addressed long after the pandemic is gone. I think that's a wonderful point. And even though we're physically distancing, there are ways that we can connect with others and um, children. So and I have to tell you, my, my daughter 
had this idea that that she wanted to make cookies for all her friends. So she went out, we went to the store kind of before things were locked down a little bit and she made cookies and she's learning how to drive. So she took her homemade cookies. She drove them to her friend's house. She put them on their doorstep and then we were quite a ways away. And uh, just to see the expressions on their faces and see them jumping up and down and taking pictures and um, you know, it doesn't take much. It, it doesn't right. take much effort or thought to really make an impact. Oh, that's such a wonderful story. Yay. That's, it, it just gives me tingles to, to Well, and it warmed my heart, that, right? You know? Because I'm supposed to be the one, like, being the role model, and yeah. here my daughter is. The kids teach us, Brian. The kids teach they us. They do. They I mean, she, she this taught is me. so cool. Yeah. Well, something happened in, in our neighborhood that I, I loved. Um, we have a lot of, of younger kids in, in our neighborhood, and um, I was working at home now, of course, and I looked out a couple of days ago and saw um, my driveway with messages of hope and have a good day and little flowers drawn in chalk. And oh. a family had, uh, with four kids, had gone around the neighborhood and wrote messages in everyone's oh. sidewalk and driveway. Isn't that the coolest thing? <laughs> so it, it just, it warmed my heart. And it's something they can do um, as a real meaningful um, helper. Um, the kids being the helpers, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. So that was Absolutely. And, you know, cool. I mean, we talked about adverse childhood experiences, but I completely agree with um, elders and shut-ins. I mean, having kids come by and just write something in chalk, I'm sure that changes the entire course of their day if not their yeah, week you know exactly and it you know and it's something that i've actually seen now um gone viral on social media it's being called chalk a walk and you can see some examples and i just love this idea of these creative ways to connect while we're physically distancing so um yeah, yeah i think maybe um if we talk enough about the potential for the adverse childhood um, experiences, maybe we can talk about positive childhood experiences that might be able to counteract um, those that are happening. You know, I think you're exact, exactly right. That, that's the um, antidote, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah. And then, you know, I did read recently, and I need to follow up on it some more, but apparently there is a time in your life where, um, an adverse childhood experience isn't, it, it could potentially be um, advantageous or helpful. Mm -hmm. And apparently that, that happens more in the teenage years, I think, uh, when you're becoming more independent and yeah. um, getting a better idea of who you are as a person and facing um, adversity, maybe for the first time. Uh, again, I need to follow up on that some more. I think the the real concern is the, the uh, younger kids mm -hmm. as they're, uh, neural connections or brains are developing. Uh, what we don't want to do is get fear hardwired into those into those brains. You know? Yeah, I think that's a really important aspect because they are going to have memories of this as a seminal event in their lives, depending on how young they are. Um, similar to those kids um, who were aware of 9/11 when it happened, um, and how might we? 
understand that at different developmental ages, they're going to have these different memories created. And we want to be able to have memory created of also being safe, um, being able to navigate this really difficult time with some potentials for making change. We know that that meaning making that comes out of often very difficult experiences is really key to those folks who are able to navigate better as adults. Um, And so thinking of what will this experience be for the kids when they remember 20 years later, 30 years later, of what happened during 2020. Um, And I'm very cognizant of that Um, and what we can do right now. This is our opportunity. Wouldn't it be great if your if your memory was, oh, yeah, we went around and we drew uh, chalk messages on people's yeah. driveway. Absolutely. I mean, Absolutely. As opposed to, you know, we hid in our house in fear, you know. Exactly. And, you know, um, my kids are, are grown up and they have kids of them, their own and um, they're very young. Um, the twins are, are two and a half now. And my other granddaughter is just turned a year. And I'm thinking about even with those very young kids, um, how do we keep them feeling that this was a safe time, that this was a time that um, they were with family, that um, they could do things. Um, yeah, they can't go to daycare or school, but all these other adventures. And how do we make that um, part of their um, biological makeup to go forward? Well, and there again, there's a, a actually an opportunity for grandparents to do mm-hmm. something positive because parents are probably really stressed right now. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Around work issues and mm-hmm. um, needing respite from their own children. And, uh, you know, I think a simple call from a grandparent, man, I remember when I was a kid how powerful that was. We've been doing and, lots um, of FaceTiming. And, um, oh, that's right. We don't make phone calls anymore. <laughs> well, we do. But, <laughs> but actually, the FaceTiming has been wonderful, I think, for both parts because, um, you know, we're not supposed to be coming together physically, um, especially those of us who might be a little older. Um, and it's been really good. Not the same, but um, wonderful ways to share. So there are so many opportunities here. One final piece, um, I've been really enjoying this conversation. I think we're going to have to have another one in a few weeks because there's so much more we can talk about. But um, you and I have been writing a lot of haiku um, during this day, these days. Um, It's something we've done for a long time. I've um, hosted the haiku challenge on Twitter for a number of years. And we've with the hashtag of haiku challenge and whatever year it is. So this is haiku challenge 20. And I know both of us have found this as a wonderful way of kind of work, working with the ambiguity of emotions of seasonal change, et cetera. Um, how do you envision that we could even make this more broadly used or talk a little bit about what you think about the haiku writing? Well, um, I think people are intimidated by haiku. I think that's the first <laughs> challenge. Yeah, yeah. And I don't see any reason why they should be. I mean, it's, it's, it couldn't be simpler. 
And what I would tell you is I've seen a lot of people say, hey, you know, you need to be journaling right now. You need to have a journal and you need to write in it every day. And uh, for myself and even for my wife, that's that's never worked. Um, I have a friend who's journaled for years. He has cabinets full of uh, journals. It's It's incredible. But when I start writing a narrative about myself, it just it just never seems to capture how I feel. And when I write haiku, um, it's just emotions or thoughts or random things that are going through my mind at that moment um, that when I look back at them later, I think, I think it actually better represents that moment in time for me personally than anything I've ever journaled. And I think it also uh, potentially through uh, Twitter or whatever social media you want to use, I think it has a huge impact on people um, just sharing the thoughts that um, go through your mind at any given moment or during a crisis. And I like haiku because it gives it structure. So if I, if I have a experience or a fear or an emotion, I do have to think about it a little bit to, to put it into that structure. It's not a completely random organization of feelings. Uh, so in that way, it's been really, really helpful for me. It's uh, helped me a lot with my seasonal affective depression. In fact, I usually stop writing haiku about February because that gets better. Uh, but now with the pandemic, um, I, I think it's great that you restarted this again. And I've noticed that we've had some new people join. We have. Um, uh, one of my colleagues at the University of Michigan is a photographer of squirrels. That's his... Um, He's done that for years, and I saw that he has joined under the hashtag Squirrel Haiku, um, <laughs> in addition to your haiku, the Haiku uh, Challenge um, 20. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I guess those are my thoughts. What are your thoughts on it? Well, I kind of hesitated because this has been kind of our routine of just doing this in January, and I wasn't sure how many people would find this helpful. But as part of my giving back to, to the world during this difficult time, I just kind of threw it out into the universe. And we've had a lot of new, um, new folks join. What I like about haiku in the sense of this kind of time of, of uncertainty and, and fear is, as, as you say, it gives it structure. It also gives it a presence of in the now. So as I teach mindfulness to my clients, often we're stuck in projecting into the future or we're ruminating about the past. And in many ways, haiku doesn't allow us to do that because we are noticing, observing what's happening right now. We aren't solving it or fixing it or finding a solution, but we are stating those emotions, as you say. And then we're stepping back from it. So there's not a reworking of it, a rehashing as often there is in reflective writing. So I really like this idea of um, dropping into the present moment with whatever that present moment looks like. And it also creates this observational way of, of looking at what our emotions are without feeding them a lot more, especially if those emotions are, are very difficult or challenging. It also gives us an opportunity to notice those bits of beauty that surround us as we are very scared. So one of the things I tend to do is I will take my walk with my phone and snap a picture of something I see on my walk that 
surprises me, captures um, some essence of what's happening that day. And that becomes the frame of the haiku. And it's one way that I use to kind of step back from those things that feel like they are such a high priority and that tend to be fearful. One of our emotions of fear is biologically um, hardwired. That that's going to be our primary emotion. That's the default, unless we have the ability, and we do have the cognitive ability, to step back a little from that and also notice those other things that aren't fear that are also surrounding us. So that's why I'm loving the haiku writing. I, I must say that maybe I don't get to it every day, but most days it's a, it's a really important part. Well, I, I like that. And I tend to write mine in the morning um, when I'm sitting on the couch drinking mm -hmm. coffee before I go to work. Yeah. And it really helps me reframe. Um, if I'm feeling negative energy, it, it helps mm -hmm. me just get that out so I can move on with my day. And if I'm feeling um, positive energy, it kind of, um, I can kind of build off of that and get through my day. Um, so it, it's a really useful tool. And I don't consider myself to be a poet by any means, but it, it's a literary tool, just like, just like journaling. Um, I know you think of it as a, a poem and a breath. It's uh, yeah. like micro journaling, you know? Yeah, yeah. I really uh, enjoy it. Yeah. Well, thank you, Brian. I know we've gone over the usual time for a podcast, but I could keep talking f to you for the whole day. Um, we have to have another conversation because I think as things continue to evolve, just having kind of a touchstone of, hey, we're all in this together, the resilience piece, um, our feelings of helplessness, how can we change those or or at least include feelings of, of hopefulness. The um, idea of um, connection is so important. So any closing thoughts that you have that you want to give listeners um, as we close up here? I would just say that um, I think you're reframing social distancing to physical distancing is brilliant. And I, I think it really changes as I've been thinking about it, this entire situation that we're in, right? We're not actually socially distancing, we're physically dif distancing, and we could actually become socially closer together um, while we're physically distancing. So it's, again, just another opportunity. Absolutely. I really enjoyed talking to you, Pam, and I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, hearing this podcast and, <laughs> and the future podcasts that you make. Thank you, Brian. You're a wonderful friend, a wonderful colleague, and we'll talk again soon. So thanks. Yeah, you're welcome.